Forward, a Fiserv podcast, features conversations with the people moving financial services and commerce forward. Here's your host, Jason Hendricks, with Fintech Forge. You've been hacked. That's a message that sends a chill down every executive, business owner, and consumer's spine. On this episode of the Fiserv Forum series, I talk with Jim Penrose, COO of Blue Voyant, a leading cyber defense firm, and Pete Kavikia. SVP, Global General Services at Fiserv, which includes protecting the integrity of payment transactions at approximately 6 million business locations and 4,000 financial institutions in over 100 countries. Between the two of them, there are close to four decades of time spent at the NSA and U.S. Secret Service. We've been talking about how viruses impact banking as part of the Fiserv Forum series, and the two of you have been thinking and talking about viruses long before the coronavirus, but you've been dealing in this world of the non-novel corona your entire careers. And I'm, I'm curious, in a time when real life is threatened by a virus, what's happening with cyber threats? Are they under stay-at-home orders as well? Pete, why don't we start with you? Well, I think in this case and in any case where there's a crisis or something that impacts people's psyche and invokes fear, right, it allows cybercrime and cybercriminals to use that, right, in order to launch a bevy of attacks that are designed to really, you know, kind of play into those fears. So you see these phishing and other types of uh, directed messages that, let's say, are playing on, you know, coronavirus testing emails or unemployment scams posing as the government. It, It just comes down to, you know, the criminals are looking to get something that they can monetize, right? And, you know, COVID specific, this is something they can use to launch a lot more attacks that potentially it could get somebody to make a mistake or socially engineer them into doing that. And I think so. Have the tactics changed related to COVID? No. But COVID provided a ton more opportunity for them to craft many more attacks and potentially be more successful than they would have before. Jim, what are you saying? Yeah, I mean, social engineering is is having a boon right now. And the reason it's um, so fruitful for the attackers is because there's so much material that's legitimate to build on, right? So think of, you know, all those different forms that you might get from HR that says, hey, you know, you had to have a pay cut, right? And you can use this document to justify other kinds of benefits, things of that nature. That's exactly the kind of fodder that is going to be picked up by a good attacker, a social engineer, and and they're going to use that to try to gain additional access. When you combine those kinds of natural opportunities, whether it's filing for government benefits or interacting with your own firm, with the fact that everybody had to go work from home, Right. They had to move their locations and they had to start working from home instead of the offices. There's naturally a a vulnerability that's going to present itself. And that vulnerability is, you know, maybe not everybody had a corporate laptop. Maybe they weren't provisioned devices that had the right, you know, multi-factor tokens and things of that nature. As soon as those exceptions start to be put in place and some of those typical controls are lifted because you have to get the job done, you combine that with the social engineering attack vectors we just discussed and that Pete described, this is exactly how how um, companies end up getting compromised uh, as, the, as the workforce goes out to the, the edges of the network and starts working from home. I mean, yeah. You bring up a really important point there, the difference between you know, there's really two parallel universes of attacks right now, right? The ones going directly to the customer as well as the ability to attack you know, the financial institution itself because it's operating in an entirely new environment as well. 
Yeah, Jim, and to play off what you just said, you know, Jason, they, they are you, – you had this rush to remote work, but you also had the rush to increase capacity or to make sure that the network capacity was what it needed to be to accommodate now all these remote workers, right? So you've increased your surface area in regards to the workers that you now have working remotely. But then you also had to probably push in a bunch more hardware and things like that into the network to, you know, kind of receive all those additional connections and handle them. So you had a lot of movement, right? And, you know, those those types of things in those quick technology deployments, you know, the the keys there are to not sacrifice as much as you can the normal pillars of cybersecurity that you would have in place if all your workers are there uh, inside the office. So you may have seen a period of time where equipment was handed out or, you know, uh, things were enabled uh, with some exceptions, as Jim says, and then there was a rush to go ahead and put those controls in place to catch up. Well, yeah. let's talk about the con- – go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I just want to extend on what Pete was saying. So, you know, we, we've seen um, an incident response, you know, the situation happening where, you know, you, you'll walk in and say, like, how did this account get taken over? How did you lose access to your account? And why was the adversary or the attacker able to, you know, send emails as, you know, uh, an important person in accounting to the CFO and create wire transfers? All those things happen because at the end of the day, there was a policy that just wasn't really properly followed and enforced, you know, and, and, and usually those incident response situations start with the same story. Hey, I've got multi-factor. I, I just don't know how it happened, right? And that And that's always the first thing I hear when I show up and we'll have that conversation. And the reason we have that conversation is because they had multi-factor, but there's always this asterisk at the end. And the asterisk is, oh, but we didn't provision it properly or didn't go through the full the full cycle and get it actually set up, right? And then and then on the other side, there's always the situation of, well, you know, I had to get a, you know, a, a reset from the help desk or something, and I, I, I'd been halfway through the reset process but didn't finish it or, or whatever, right? There's always like these idiosyncrasies about the way you enforce things like multi-factor that if you're not really pedantic about it, especially in the work-from-home environment, they're going to end up uh, with, with the attacker's gaining access to an account, doing the ATO, and, and then moving out with your combo. Yeah, I say, I say Jim, I, you know, it, it, you bring up uh, kind of another good point there is, is when you're talking about multi-factor in this uh, time, right, maybe people hadn't gotten completely to all the areas they needed to for multi-factor deployment, leaving those openings and then moving into this higher threat environment, right? It presents a lot more opportunity for that credential compromise, right? It usually comes down to, like you're saying, someone either loses a credential and a password, and that that password or credential happens to be a privileged one, or that person is in a privileged position and makes a mistake, right? It doesn't even have to be an account. It could be mm-hmm. someone who has power inside that company to make a wire transfer or approve a funds movement that actually gets one of these things and then ends up, you know, making that fatal mistake of, you know, following through with it without kind of a dual control. Well, and that's a really important asterisk that you bring up, which is the idea of there's always exceptions, and a lot of times those exceptions are people and you know, I remember learning this in my cyber training. The human is the weak link in a lot of these cases. Can you both expand upon that for when we think about the human factor as it plays out? How do we actually protect against that? 
I mean, I think, you know, checking constantly is one of the ways that you make sure that, you know, those exceptions get policed up on, on a routine basis. And, and if I had to, you know, give a brief recommendation, it's that you really do audit the things like your multi-factor and, and all those exposures for, you know, VPN access, remote desktops, all the things that you're using to allow your workforce to be productive when they're at home, especially during this, this time of the pandemic. You know, when you think of stuff you've ripped from the headlines, you know, you, you see the maze ransomware actors, you know, hacking companies like LG and, and, and uh, you know, snake ransomware and Honda, you know, th these are like massive impacts. And you say to yourself, well, well, how in the world, right, can they continue to gain this access and, and, and do so much damage and extortion? And it does come back to that human factor. And ultimately, at the end of the day, at the end of the day it's usually a masquerade operation, right? They've got someone's yep. username and password, and there's no more, you know, appropriate protection on those ways in for people to work remotely. And those kinds of exceptions for the people, of course, cause the problem. But there's also the the test systems and the other sort of staging environments and all that other stuff that's left out there that, that if you don't properly go back through and, and make sure that you take that down or block it off or put it behind the jump box, you know, it's going to be a way for the bad guys to get in. Yeah. Pete, can you actually describe – I know you educated me on this – Talk about the maze network and how that's rolling out right now. Well, look, I, th I think we're seeing, you know, kind of a unprecedented increase in the amount of companies you, you're actually seeing announced that they've been impacted by ransomware or maze, the maze, you know, group uh, of ransomware. And the one thing that I think you're seeing, and Jim, I know, you, you know, you might comment on this also, is we're seeing not just now the ransomware lock down some machines, but we're seeing the ransomware either as like an additional component to a data data exfiltration out of a company or the ransomware or the, the uh, malware components of the ransomware has the ability to exfiltrate data. So you yeah. get your extortion note and it says we've locked your network. And not only that, we do have your customer data and it's used as a ploy to kind of, you know, get you to be more amenable to paying a ransom as opposed to not paying a ransom, right? But, you know, the tactics and the, the malware may be named something new, right? But it's entering through the same vectors, right? And so, you know, it goes back to what Jim and I said around, you know, the, 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 the basic pillars of having these concentric rings of control within your organization, right? From, from starting outside at vulnerability management to what Jim talked about with enhanced authentication, right? Step up, always using a second factor, a lot of smartphone device approval type second factors being used now, which are really good to stop this kind of thing. Endpoint security, good endpoint security to see if, you know, are you are you getting an email that's got a malware payload or a malicious link in it and kind of contain that before it reaches out to other places in your network. And then just closing down that privilege, that amount of people who has privileged access. Because when you get ransomware, and you happen to be a privileged user, that ransomware can reach out to way more places, and the impact is way larger than it would have been if you didn't have privileged access. Yeah, that old skeleton key suddenly, it was awfully convenient for someone not to be inconvenienced, you know, you know, the time right. it takes to authenticate, but boom, now suddenly all the doors can get unlocked. That's right. So, Jim, let's build on this. How do you build a good foundation? I think Pete gave, you know, a great list there of things people need to focus on for those concentric circles. Where do you think, you know, people fall down when trying to build that good foundation? You know, where's that thing that you see time and time again where you get called in and you kind of have to do the head slap and say, but you didn't do this, right? You put in the deadbolt, but you didn't use the deadbolt. 
Yeah, well, I think we've uh, foot stomped a, a few of the first party issues, protecting yourself, and I, I think Pete really outlined them really quite substantially. So I'm going to talk about third-party risk because I think the people that you trust and you're doing business with day-to-day, generally, um, you know, you're going to have to give some kind of IT access to, whether it's VPN access or some other kind of shared resources. That's uh, a natural way for an attacker to find a you know, a way into your network and into your systems, even though you've got substantial protections, right? And I think that, you know, when I look at the the current environment, the threats from the outside, from those trusted parties, you know, I'll call it the ecosystem, is actually, you know, really burgeoning in, in a major way. And, and in our, our current world, it's actually going to get more and more important given our tremendous dependence on things from Zoom to WebEx to all these different video teleconference systems that have their own apps on all your computers and phones and everything else. So there's a, there's a tremendous, you know, um, attack surface there uh, for all the people you trust. And, and what I would say is you have to think about how you operationalize one of those programs, third-party risk management, and make it more than uh, an activity where you send a questionnaire and somebody fills in the, the answers they know you want to hear, right, because they're going to attest that I have all the right controls in place and I'm doing everything that Pete expects to do business with Pete, right? That's cool, right? But what you really need is, as, as a person who's an IT security professional, is you need information. You need to know that there's been a change and somebody had a misconfiguration at a trusted partner, and they may be letting the bad guy in right now. You can't depend on everyone to have uh, that sort of 360 view of themselves at all times, even though you might because you're talented, they don't, right? And many times they might only have one IT person, no security guy. Maybe they outsourced all IT to an MSP. All those things happen, right? And what, and what you need to do is keep your head on a swivel to defend yourself. So it, it sounds like, you know, it isn't enough to have the documentation. That might be good, you know, when the regulators come in and say, how did this happen? That you can say, but look, if they filled out the questionnaire, Trust and verify. Trust and verify. (laughs) Trust Trust and verify. So, Pete, build on that. So where are the elements that you think are most likely that you really need to go spend some time in the verification? Well, I think, and knowing Jim and my background, both being kind of on the government bad guy side and now also in the the finance uh, arena and in the private arena, it, it really, if you go back to basics, it comes back to, you know, understanding what your business does and what's valuable about it that somebody wants, right? What what can they monetize that I have or I do, right? And so if you shift to this kind of data-centric view uh, or monetizable kind of value-centric view of what it is that you're, you know, trying to protect and you start there, right? If you just start there and you make that, you know, hard to get, or unreadable to somebody outside of your organization, right? Really, really good encryption and, you know, key management and things like that. And then you extend that out to your third parties, right? Because that's your most valuable asset, right? So when you ask me, you know, from a third party perspective, what are you most worried about? I'm worried that are my third parties handling my monetizable you know, sensitive data that I'm entrusted to by my clients' information just as well as I am. And so your third-party policies have to include, right, this, you know, there's a checklist and there's a trust, but verifying that, you know, the data that you're handling for me is handled just as well as the data as it's handled inside of my organization, right? And I think that that goes a long way. Well, I I think that is – a really good way to approach it because let's face it within financial services we would really like to stomp out all risk 
And that game of whack-a-mole actually probably can take your eyes off of the prize. So I really like how you boiled that down, which is don't try and eliminate all risk. Start and put your most energy around the thing that is actually most valuable. Yeah, get away from castle and moat. Right. Try stop stop building from the outside in and just identify what it is you really want to protect. Put a lot of focus on that. Build your rings of defense out from that place. Your trip wires, your you know, your network defense, your perimeter defense, your surveillance and monitoring, all of that stuff uh, around those things, and you'll have at least as a start a very decent program. Yeah, Pete, I think I, there's one thing I want to highlight and maybe even be a little contrarian on, and that's this concept of the tier one, you know, vendors or the people you really need to concentrate on. I think there's this, you know, paradigm out there that they have, you know, like the Microsoft, AWS, you know, the big, you know, Azure you know, cloud provider. This is where you should focus your efforts when it comes to third-party risk management. And I, and I say, no, no, they have massive security budgets, right? They're going to be better at that than most of us are day to day. Where the risk really lies is in the long tail, right? If you think of all those other vendors and contractors, right, you need to get beyond tier one. And, and right now people are saying, look, my risk team, I've got five five people in it, right? And I, I'd have to make my risk team 15 or 20 people to do that. I, I got news to you. You have to figure out how to scale that. And if you can't do it internally, you got to find help. But, but you just can't say, eh, you know, too many, and I don't want to have the data because if I have the data, I'll be held accountable. Uh, I mean, now you're going into the, the realm of kind of, you know, I, I call this the excuse matrix, right? Well, I had the data. I didn't act on it and all this other stuff. You want to get out of the excuse matrix. You want to concentrate on how you tangibly reduce risk and, and you do the right operational thing. And let's face it, those providers, because I agree with what you're saying, they their business is to build those cloud environments and to give you the tools to secure them properly. It's the it's the ones that you're talking about. It's, it is the long tail, right, of, of providers that you really need that better visibility into you know, what's going on there than you do with those tier ones. Or the number of times that I could tell you I have a conversation with a banker about, oh, we could never work with, you know, that fintech startup or this other vendor because we can't have it on-prem. And, you know, we don't trust anything that we can't actually, you know, go to the, the closet and, you know, rattle, you know, the chain on the door and say, oh, yeah, our data is in there. It's like you think because they're on AWS or Azure that they're not secure just because you can physically see it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's old thinking, honestly. If, if you know, it's it's there will always be a place for on-prem, right? There will always be some you know sector of you know let's say business need that maybe you're going to say I need on-prem to some degree, but cloud is is a very scalable and securable environment. If, as long as you take the same principles that you're using with your on-prem, if you have them, and you can extend them out to the cloud, make sure you're controlling access properly, make sure you're monitoring properly, make sure your configurations are controlled, because I think that's one of the biggest things you see in cloud is that there's, there's a configuration out there that's not kind of within your, your standard builds, you know, policy. And then you apply the same data protection standards out there. And I think it's, it's, you're seeing that happen and, and you're seeing it used way more and more than you used to in the past. And security is not the excuse now not to use cloud as much. Well, Jim, I'm wondering what's on, else on your excuse matrix because I, I think one of the important things, you know, in addition to let's put the hole in, cloud does not mean not secure because you physically can't see it. 
the idea that you hinted at, well, maybe we should ju- just shouldn't collect the data or use the data because then we could be held accountable. It seems like, you know, that is a head in the sand approach to some real value. What else is on your excuse matrix? Well, I think there's always this this challenge of, you know, we, we, we had the alerts, but we couldn't distinguish, right, whether it was a real or a false positive. We couldn't triage properly, right? I mean, that that's one that's kind of a classic. It's as old as the hills. And and I think, you know, what you need to do is is take it on from a real sort of responsible perspective and, and say, look, you know, we know that there's certain basics that have to be followed, right, by the people that we trust. And, you know, we're not necessarily going to, you know, be able to determine if everybody's got some sort of malware that they're not, you know, remediating as quickly as they should. But I can certainly see that they've got, you know, an open S3 bucket or that they've misconfigured their firewall and they're leaving, you know, open databases exposed on the Internet. Generally speaking, if, if you go through and, and, and you're able to, you know, note those things and, and help others police them up, um, you're going to be in a much better position. Uh, and it's it's just a it's a matter of not trying to to solve all the problems at once. Right. I, I mean, if you've probably seen these reports, you know, where the, it characterizes the company and there's 100 pages of actions. Right. Yeah. I would say forget the 100 pages of actions. Right. What's the one thing or the two things that need to be done by that person you trust or the vendor, the entity you're working with to really make them, you know, up their game just a little bit? And if it's a reasonable request and you've scoped it down to something that's like actionable, they'll do it. Right. Because it's like, you know, pictures or it didn't happen, Jason. Like you, you can look at it. If I can see that that, you know, database is exposed or the firewall is misconfigured. Yeah, I get it. Right. Now, proven to me that I had a, a bot three weeks ago. Yeah, that's kind of hard. Right. Why should you waste your time there? It's just going to be a rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, let's expand this because, you know, one thing when running an online only financial institution, the person who had to deal with the angry customers is the point of escalation when there were card compromises, right? They tend to look at the bank. It's like, you compromised my information. It's like, no, I didn't compromise your information. So much of this is happening, you know, with the retailers and the e-coms. How should they be thinking about it? Has Have the threats changed in the e-com world, you know, because that's where the money literally is changing hands? Um, I'll weigh in first. I mean, like, look, Magecart, from my perspective, has been in a uh, threat actor group, which has been completely prolific. And I know that there's been some arrests, you know, related to that that group recently, and that's a good thing because they've been doing, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage. And, you know, in the cases I've worked personally where Magecart was was in, in the uh, in the e-commerce company, you know, they were selling, you know, apparel and whatnot, you know, fairly fairly large operation, but but Magecart was doing a great job of, of siphoning off the transactions and, and, and then monetizing it. It seemed like they were you know, they had multi tiers of support. You know, the attackers did, right? Like, like if you kick them out during incident response, they'd come back with some new improved tactics, right? They'd first try to reestablish their access, fail, and then they start upping their game level by level until you got to, you know, mage cart tier four support, right? And they, and they were bringing all kinds of crazy, you know, um, cross site scripting attacks back at you through spear phishing and all this other stuff. So it was a, uh, it was kind of really interesting to watch as it developed operationally, but, but, the reality was that, you know, those smaller retailers out there that were running, you know, Magento and these other software packages, that that was that's the domain, right, of, of, of attackers like Magecart, right? They literally make a living out of injecting into people's databases and stealing those transactions. And, and even if you think you've got secure, you know, modules and stuff deployed, you know, they, they shim in underneath. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to, to support that, Jim, like the, the waters of fraud are going to flow 
where they can go and get the data, right? So, you know, you don't see much these days uh, since, you know, everything's gone EMV, especially in the U.S. You don't see a lot of counterfeit card stuff going on, right? You do see, you know, where there's still dribs and drabs of Magstripe that's being accepted. You, you might see some of those pockets, you know, have an issue now and then. But you see now, like you're talking about Magecart, it's all – you know, e-commerce pressure. It's all, can we get to the back-end database or can we get the information as someone is, you know, kind of presenting it to start the transaction? Because they also know that there's some security and encryption behind all that, so they got to get it at that point. And then layer COVID, right, because you mentioned COVID in the beginning. How much more online shopping is happening right now than than before, right? So you're going to see a higher volume of clients, who are going to these sites who potentially could get their credentials to compromise, right, with the phishing. Yep. And then you, you have a higher possibility to, you know, use Mage to skim, you know, shopping cart numbers because the volume of that kind of shopping is way up too. So it, it goes hand in hand, and, and you definitely see that shift towards the e-com. Well, let's talk about one of the COVID responses when there you know, is a return to, to normal Everyone's predicting contactless is, you know, just going to be going through the roof. We hear this from banks all the time, you know, that they're hearing this from their customers. What sort of threats are going to be introduced by contactless payments? Well, look, I, I think you have some very trusted forms of contactless payment out there, right? The smartphone-based, you know, I'll mention Apple and Apple Pay. The Apple Pay data stream is very secure. You're not going to see a lot of, you know, interception in the data stream where, you know, in the past you might have before that type of technology, you know, was introduced. Where I think in the beginning of, you know, when contactless payment was introduced, you saw some of the risk was upon enrollment, right? Upon Mm -hmm. enrollment and verification of that number in my wallet. Right. If I could get if I could do that enrollment and impersonate, you know, the person doing it, then I'd have my best chance of of kind of being able to then use that that payment method. And you did see that early on, but you quickly saw a shift sort of on the issuer side where the bank said, all right, look, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to instant provision unless I can send you a one-time code to a known device or something like that. So you see that authentication come into play, right? Once you get that enrollment solid, you know, you're you're in you're in pretty good shape with contactless. Yeah, in you know, one of the things in that shift to contactless and using the phone, I do like that well, not only do am I not pulling out a card and it's a step up, but I do like the ability that, you know, first it was thumb and it's now face ID, that it is adding a level of security to even authenticate, you know, a transaction that it is me. Now I wish it could also look at and say, Hey Jason, look based on the time of day, we're not gonna authenticate this transaction because you're clearly buying junk food in the afternoon because you had a salad for lunch, but you know, we'll hopefully get there to to lock down the devices to that level. Can I have one last thing to that? So sure. I think of the the phones are great, right? I mean I think they really actually make things much more secure generally. But what if what I would say as a cautionary note is as a user, right, if you see something pop up and it's saying you need to put your username and password in on your phone, probably shouldn't be happening very much, right? Like, like I would, I would 
proceed with great caution, right? Because finding a way to social engineer users and have them look like it's a, it's an Apple, you know, username and password window to, to enter your information is a great social engineering tactic. And, and a lot of people just let their guard down when they're on their device, especially they're walking around. It's not at work, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so it's a, it's another way to, for, for bad guys to take you in that comfortable place where they think you, you know, you're secure, generally speaking, like on an Apple device, you know, that's pretty secure generally, but you can still drop your guard and end up giving away some credentials. So that's one cautionary note I wanted to leave on, on the. On yeah, but the, uh, and Jason, I'll tell you, there's there's actually something that's been very effective in helping reduce a lot like fraud in, in the e-com space and in any spaces, really the consumer involvement mm, in yep. the stream, right? texting people to say, was this you two seconds ago who tried this transaction? You people like that. It works really well. It not only could stop, you know, a whole line of other fraud very, very quickly, but it limits the exposure and it makes it makes uh, the clients feel like somebody's watching. They didn't think this was, this was me and I had a chance to say it was or it wasn't. And I think we're seeing that both very highly accepted by clients and also very effective. Yeah, it, you know, it, it is the equivalent, again, drawing the parallels between the two types of virus. It is the contact tracing, right, which is very quickly being the, able to cut it off before it spreads. Don't wait until the end of the month when you get your credit card statement to discover a whole lot of bad things have been, been going on. What do you both see on the horizon that excites you around you know, ways that we can better combat fraud? Because you know, one thing I have learned over the years, both as an entrepreneur and investor, is the, these bad guys do a phenomenal job of always innovating. You know, back to that, Jim, your story about like the level of escalation. And it's like, wow, this is both beautiful and just scary at how good they are. Where do you see either new dangers coming or new benefits, you know, coming when it when it comes to fighting fraud? So, look, I think that fraud is a, a you know an ever present challenge when it comes to any of these transactions that are financial related. And and when I when I think of the the e commerce world, you know, the challenges that are going to sort of remain out there are really uh, around the content management systems, right? So so anything that's used to create the experience that you have online is going to continue to be a major target. And actually, it's going to be one of the few targets left for, for the bad guys. So I would expect that those software packages, those databases, the things that are used to essentially generate the content on the fly, right, for your online experience when you're doing online shopping, e-commerce, that's going to continue to be the place that that gets hammered and, and, and exploited in, re, in a very sort of strategic way by the fraudsters and by those actors because it's it's the only way to get hot, large quantities of stuff anymore. You have to you have to be in the CMS, the content management system, that's going to render the headers, the footers, the JavaScript, and all that stuff. If you can't be there, all the other controls that Pete and I have talked about at length are going to get you. It's just going to happen because the, the, there's other stopgap measures, and you have to have a way to get into the browser of the person who's at, at the site to, to separate them from their PII that, and then and then at least have a bite of the apple later to try to fraudulently make a transaction. Yeah, and I, th I think, uh, Jim, also on the positive side, right, I think you're seeing better use of data, right, to determine, you know, if behavior of, you know, your, your cardholder is or your consumer is them, right? You, you're seeing the better use of a lot of different data elements, the safe handling of that data, right? And I think as 
technology allows for the easier safe use of that data, right? The, the, the easy tokenization type things, the, you know, the encryption on the fly, the ability to then encrypt data but still use it to kind of understand in an anonymized way behavior, right, you know, really is, is going to help, you know, kind of continue to have that flexible capability as these payment acceptance types and contactless and all this stuff continues to expand, you do see a lot of things also expanding, right? And the AI and the all of that, that data use. And, you know, I, I think that's going to be one of the keys in, you know, allowing the consumer freedom and flexibility not to de- get declined when it is them and learning more about, you know, when it probably isn't and when you do need to make that decision to decline something or, or reject a transaction. So I, I think that's that's a positive because I, I am seeing a lot more focus on the safe and protected use of a lot of that data, you know, for the purposes of preventing fraud. Well, it is amazing the leaps and bounds they've made, and I think it goes to engaging the consumer in this is important when it feels like it's a benefit not the inconvenience, and I won't name you know the the processor that would call repeatedly, but you know couldn't figure out that Illinois and Wisconsin like actually share a border, and so this like anomalous behavior of me filling up with gas in Wisconsin, right? You know, on the way to Wisconsin Dells, you know, is actually pretty expected. Those states are right next to each other. That has definitely gone down. I think that's got to be one of the keys. Still, is the level of interruption will tolerate to comply has to keep going down. And, you know, it's not often talked about, but what is the user experience around this? I think that's a lot of what you both have described. This is no longer either is the the impacted party or the person working within the institution, whether it's an FI or a merchant, is that's improved. It's easier to stay compliant. Now, last question for each of you. You know, what is a misnomer or a piece of mythology in the industry broadly that you think is important to dispel? Um, I'll weigh in first, and I'll take you a walk down memory lane and talk about the NotPetya incident that happened a while, back in 2017. And there's this resignation you'll feel uh, from a lot of people who are security leaders, and they say, like, if, if the Russians want to get you, the Chinese want to get you, they're going to come hack you. They've got all those resources, buildings full of people whose job that is. And and I, I often want to, you know, challenge that assumption. And the reason I want to challenge the assumption is because many times when you go back and you look at the analysis of the situation, it wasn't like a zero-day exploit or something amazing that was hidden under wraps that was the reason that, that the attack happened. You go back to NotPetya, there were known vulnerabilities in the accounting software uh, update server, right, that, that was serving that package of software. You could Google for it and run the Metasploit module that would have given you remote access to the server, right? So the skill set required wasn't being a Russian state-sponsored hacker. It was being an above-average Googler, right? So so I want to just, you know, make sure that people understand that and appreciate it because that's exactly where you can make a difference, right? If you had known that you were depending on that software package and, and it was something that in that long tail of risk you should have been, like, focusing in on, you could have decided, look, I don't need to, I don't need to resign myself to this. You know what? I could just stop. I could turn off all the auto updates for the software until we replace it with another package, right? You could, you could have made that decision. People think they can't and they don't think they can get in the way of that kind of situation because there was a, a state sponsored hacker behind the attack and they were going to be bold and crash a lot of systems. Crashing a lot of systems and being bold didn't mean it was super special cyber operations. 
It, yeah. it, just, it just meant that they were willing to, to do that and, and, and break a lot of things, right? And I, I want to make sure that there's a, a clear distinction there because that, that's what happened in the real world. But I think a lot of people miss that, the sim- simplicity of it. You, you shattered my image of this network of computers with the super geniuses, with the electronic music, you know, going on. And for some reason, they always stand up, you know, it, you know, while they're writing code, you know, with the super cooled computers to hack in. No, it's just a known bo- vulnerability with someone who can Google. Yep. Pete, how about you? Yeah, spinning records with one hand and typing with the other to hack, right? <laughs> No, I, I think, um, and Jim, I, I mean, it was, what you said was great, but I, I think also you, you might agree that, you know, you hear a lot of things about, you know, how much more sophisticated things are getting, how many more, you know, new vulnerabilities or ways to get in are being found, right? But it really comes back to use it. Maybe some of the tools are new. Maybe some of the techniques make it easier or lower the barrier of entry for an attacker to try to get in to your network, but it always comes back to the same types of vulnerabilities that get exploited, right? You're still you're still seeing people, you know, find unpatched boxes, right? And, th- and these vulnerabilities are not new sometimes. They're old vulnerabilities. You're still seeing people spending a lot of effort to compromise credentials, right, and use those credentials to get in. So the misnomer to me is just that so many things are changing in relation to pure sophistication and yes there is some more sophistication but it's it really is the same new tools maybe new techniques lower barrier to entry more people doing it to get into the same you know five vectors over and over again you know phishing is as old as email right like there were first the first 10 email accounts and then the next email that went out probably was a phishing scam Yep. Yeah. So, J- Jason, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about, and that had to do with this. There's this mail service called XM that, that had been vulnerable, and it had like the severe level vulnerability for a long time, for like about a year now. And it was something that, you know, didn't have any – nobody had written a proof of concept of how to exploit it, right? But it was known that it was a remote code execution vulnerability. It was a problem, right? It turns out that the Russians actually did invest time and effort, right, to exploit that one. But, look, it was knowable, right? The thing I want to leave you with is even though they implemented it and used it operationally, it was a knowable thing. You knew that there was a vulnerability, and you could have patched it. And and when I was, you know, talking to different, you know, manufacturers and others who had this vulnerability, they would say, yeah, I mean, I I know it's there, but should I really waste the time? There's, There's not even an implemented exploit against it, right? And I said, look, I understand the nuance of what you're saying, but I'm telling you that's exactly the kind of assumption that the bad guys want. So if you do want to protect yourself from state-sponsored hackers, don't make those kinds of assumptions, right? If you got a, a, a level nine or ten CVE vulnerability on your network, you got to patch that. Yep. And Jim, you know, uh, these even state-sponsored actors—they're not going to use their most sophisticated vulnerabilities and tools if they don't have to, right? If you yeah. left the opening easier, they're going to use the easy opening. They're not going to expose those those kind of you know super duper tools that they have. One hundred percent. Well, this has been phenomenally educational and a lot of great takeaways. And so thank you both for investing the time today to share your knowledge around cyber. For those who are educated in the space, I think this has been phenomenal. And for those who you know work in the space and are impacted by it, it's been very educational. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks, Jason. Bye, Pete. Thank you for joining us. Look for future episodes of Forward at Fiserv.com slash forward and soon on major podcasting platforms.